From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. After the shooting in Boulder, some Coloradans are struggling to get back to their normal grocery shopping. I know that grocery stores are not inherently unsafe just because one was the scene of a horrific crime. And yet, when we pulled into the parking lot, I felt my heart rate increase, my breath quicken, my stomach churn. Later, Russell Strong lost his eye last summer in a Black Lives Matter protest in Denver following George Floyd's death. I had the sign, I'm holding that over my head, we're chanting, and the police just start shooting things into the crowd. I'm struck in the face with a projectile. Now he's among the injured protesters who are suing the city of Denver. Then a woman who posed for a painting by Norman Rockwell as a teen just found out what happened to that work of art. Every day on CPR News, you hear stories that transport you out of your world and help you understand the lives of others all across the state and beyond. Hi, I'm Western Slope reporter Stina Sieg. Colorado Public Radio brings you impactful journalism that's only possible because you value and support it. You rely on CPR News to keep you informed. Please support this vital service by donating at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Avery Lill. Boulder police officer Eric Talley was remembered as a hero at a public funeral Tuesday, a man of great character and a proud father who loved talking about his family. Talley was the first officer to respond to reports of a shooting inside a King Super store last week. He died in the line of duty, leaving behind a wife and seven children. His kids wrote a poem for their dad two Christmases ago. It's called Our Unsung Hero. It was shared during Tuesday's remembrance. Dad, our unsung hero... You never count the cost. Whatever we need is never too much, but our praises have not been enough. Dad, our unsung hero, you daily risk your life at work to guard and care for the welfare of the needy. Oh, our praises could never be enough. Dad, our unsung hero, who provides so well for us, we've not realized all you do for us. Our praises have not been enough. Dad, our unsung hero, who guards and guides our way, we love you and we thank you on this Christmas day. May the angels watch over you and guard you on your way. May God bless and protect you and bring you home each day. Our Unsung Hero, a poem written by the children of Boulder police officer Eric Talley. It was read by Father Daniel Nolan, assistant pastor at Our Lady of Mount Carmel Parish, during the public funeral for Officer Talley on Tuesday. People from across the state joined to remember Talley, one of the 10 people killed inside the Boulder grocery store last week. I feel it a tremendous loss for not having had the opportunity to meet him, because he was truly an extraordinary man. And I'm glad that I had the opportunity to meet the people whose lives he impacted. I wish I'd had the opportunity to meet him myself. I am so grateful for all the police officers and all the safety personnel because they go out and do their jobs every day. And I'm just, I'm just so sad for all the victims. And the seven kids of Officer Talley, it just breaks my heart. So that's what I came to do today is to show my respect and to say thank you. 
Since the shooting, more than 12,000 people have donated more than $1.3 million to the Colorado Healing Fund. The money will support the victims' families, the survivors, and the Boulder community. Grocery stores aren't just places of business. They can also be places of community and connection. Emily Tate of Arvada is a journalist who recently relocated to Arvada, the same city where the alleged gunman is from. She wrote an essay to express her feelings about returning to the supermarket after the shooting and shared it with us. I'd been dreading our regular Sunday trip to the grocery store all week, for six days to be precise. I'd laid awake at night privately calculating how we could stretch our remaining groceries into another dinner, wondering whether I would come off as too paranoid if I suggested to my boyfriend that we do a grocery pickup order this time instead of venturing inside. The thoughts had swirled in my head ever since the news of the King Super shooting in Boulder had broken last Monday afternoon. I was instantly petrified, realizing that another sacred space, this time the hallowed halls of the grocery store, had been violated, another basic expectation for safety shattered. When I learned that the shooter was from Arvada, I felt my scalp prickle. What if he hadn't driven all the way up to Boulder, but had in fact opted for his local grocer? What if he'd gone a day earlier, when I was there, and when the building was teeming with other Sunday shoppers? After a difficult year in which my nerves have been frayed, in which safety feels tenuous and risk abundant, the mass shooting that left 10 Coloradans dead dealt yet another blow to my fragile psyche. So when my boyfriend Kevin and I agreed to head to the King Supers in Arvada during the afternoon on Sunday, I felt myself begin to vibrate with terror. I know that the shooter is in jail. I know that grocery stores are not inherently unsafe just because one was the scene of a horrific crime. I know that my fear around carrying out this mundane errand is irrational. And yet, when we pulled into the parking lot, I felt my heart rate increase, my breath quicken, my stomach churn. Even Kevin, rational, unflappable Kevin, admitted that he'd considered going to a different grocery chain for the time being. That was unsettling. Worse, though, was the realization, as we parked, that many people had taken it a step further. After many Sunday grocery store runs to this location, today was the first time in weeks that the parking lot wasn't packed, the produce not picked over, the aisles mostly free of other shoppers. It was an eerie scene. For the first time in 13 months, I didn't bother to wipe down the handles of the grocery cart as we walked in the store. I wanted to get on with it not lingering for even a moment near the store's entrance. No, once inside, I had one objective, to get what we needed and get out as soon as possible. My head was on a swivel. Every person, or every man, felt like a threat. I could see Kevin scrutinizing other patrons as well. Could that person be disguising a weapon under their sweatshirt? Is it just me, or is that guy acting weird? Once, I turned our cart around on the spot to avoid being in the same aisle as a man whose waistband I couldn't see. My mind was racing. I was trembling. But above all, as we wove in and out of the aisles, I was angry, furious, that someone had made me feel this way, had made me suspicious of harmless, well-meaning shoppers just trying to collect what they need for the week ahead. At checkout, I felt relief that we were nearly done, and also heightened awareness that here, by the entrance, converging with other shoppers, we were facing our greatest exposure yet. I scanned dozens of items at the self-checkout, And in my hurried, harried state, input the wrong produce type and the wrong quantity so many times that I'd run out of ways to tell the attendant I was sorry. I felt like a frantic, jittering fool, but knew at the same time that I could do nothing to steady myself. 
By the time we were in the parking lot, I practically ran to the car and might as well have chucked the grocery bags at the trunk. When we'd both shut our car doors and were passing hand sanitizer between us, I exhaled. Wow, I'm glad that's over, I said, already uneasy about our return. An essay by Emily Tate of Arvada about her first trip to a grocery store after the attack March 22nd in Boulder. On Twitter, we asked about your experiences, and they varied. Chase Meyer from Denver says he just got vaccinated at a grocery store. He said, I was thankful, relieved, and anxious all at the same time. Anastasia Johnson of Inglewood reports being in Costco Saturday, speaking to a rep at the mobile phone kiosk. There was a loud bang, and he threw open a cabinet door and said, Here, I think you can fit in here. A pallet had dropped. We are all on edge. Meantime, Christina Gardner lives in Boulder and often shops at the store where the shooting happened. Ordered groceries to be delivered, she explains, and then felt guilt and shame for making someone else do that for me. All the while, my kids continue to ask, when will King Supers be open again? The grief is paralyzing right now, she adds. Steve Livingston of Lakewood writes, I've been several times in many places. I make sure to thank the employees more than I already do. However, I am not going to live in fear. A number of you saw floral displays in your local stores, honoring the 10 people who were killed in Boulder. You also caught glimpses of increased security. There was a cop with a black mourning band on her badge to honor the fallen officer. And finally, when it comes to stepping inside a supermarket, Jenica E. of Denver tweeted simply, I work in one. I have had no choice. Colorado Matters talked with a psychologist last week who said feelings of fear and pain after a traumatic event like the attack in Boulder are normal. He also had some suggestions for how to care for your mental health. You can find those at CPR.org. And if you're really struggling right now, please call the Colorado Crisis Services hotline. It's free and professional. That number is 1-844-493-8255. Or text TALK to 38255. After the mass shootings in Boulder and Atlanta, the renewed debate over gun policy is just beginning. It's an issue that's polarizing, emotionally divisive, and complex. Let's listen to an excerpt of Purplish, the politics podcast from CPR News. Here's Caitlin Kim in Washington, D.C., and public affairs reporters Benta Berkland and Andrew Kenny. In the last few days, I've been talking to a lot of people who knew and loved the victims of the Boulder King Super shooting. I wanted to share one thing out of the many things that stayed with me. This is Father Radovan Petrovic, and one of the victims, 23-year-old Nevin Stanisic, attended Father Petrovic's church. What I can tell you is that family is, is wondering how this can happen here in this country, to which they fled from war, from madness, from poverty you know, to come to this country and start a new life and then to have this tragedy happen to them. Nevin Stanisic's family were refugees from the Yugoslav War from Serbia and Bosnia. 
But this question that they're asking, I think, is a really universal one that we hear after every mass shooting, both from ordinary people and from politicians. Why? Why here? And what can be done to make this stop? The mass murder in Boulder has lawmakers in Denver and Washington, D.C., again talking about more restrictions on guns. And that means we're here to talk about what they want to do, what they've done before, and how big a fight it's all going to be. Before the mass shooting in Boulder, Democratic lawmakers at the state legislature were pushing forward a couple of gun bills that Republicans don't support, but aren't hugely controversial. Now they're starting to talk about policies more sweeping than anything I've seen proposed in the state before, Mm. and really some ideas that weren't being talked about at all publicly just a few days ago. An assault-style weapons ban across Colorado. Meanwhile, President Biden called for passage of a nationwide assault weapons ban right after the Boulder shooting. But this is a scene that has played out in Congress many times before. Democrats are saying once again that enough is enough. They're talking about the need to act on bills to reduce gun violence. But honestly, once they get through the immediate thoughts and prayers, this just hasn't dominated things in D.C. Republicans and Democrats have other priorities they want to fight over. Well, there has been some action, right, in Congress. I think Democrats in the U.S. House just passed a couple of gun bills. And backers have been trying to push them forward in the Senate. There was even a Senate hearing on how to reduce gun violence already scheduled before either of the shootings in Atlanta or Boulder. You know, something the chair, Dick Durbin of Illinois, noted. I can't change them in my opening statement to keep up with it. It just keeps coming at us. We are numb to the numbers. Unless we are personally touched, it's just another statistic. That has got to stop. I want to stop and react to something that Durbin said there, the idea that we become numb to the numbers unless we're personally touched. I don't know if I believe that because I don't think these shootings are surprising anymore, and yet it still feels like it punches just as hard in the gut every time it happens. I talked to one local lawmaker here who said that he thinks sometimes people say we've gone numb to this, and Mm. he doesn't think that's true at all. Mm. He said he thinks we've gotten good at it and we've had a lot of practice. Senate Majority Leader Steve Fenberg, he's a Democrat. He was born and raised in Boulder, and he represents that district. And I think he just really described what a lot of people here are feeling. I'm devastated. I, I, this is my grocery store. This is down the street from where my wife teaches middle school and her students go there on lunch break. Yeah, Benta, I've been hearing a lot of that personal anguish, too. I've been talking, like I said, with people who are friends and co-workers of the people who were killed in the attack. Mm. And let me tell you about one of these co-workers, Darcy Lopez. She was in the store. She's worked there for a couple of years. She was in the store at the time of the attack. And for her, this horrible event is rapidly turning her into an advocate for gun reform. She described herself as someone who grew up around a lot of guns, who has Mm. shot guns. She is from Fort Lupton. But what she experienced, she said, on Monday is just unlike anything she ever imagined. You know, anybody can walk off the street and just buy the thing and use it. And it's, it's just, it's unbelievable. I feel like it's just, people just don't understand. They don't understand it until they hear those gunshots. I've shot guns before. I've heard gunshots before. It's nothing like this. You know, just so many rounds, so fast. It went on for so long. One person, one gun. When does it end? And to be clear, this is one person's view. 
I wanted to ask you guys, though, do you think that this moment does create any political will, whether it's in the state or the federal level, for Democrats to again take that political risk and pass something like an assault weapons ban? I think it's a real possibility that something could happen, especially with so much grief and calls for action after a Boulder shooting. Yeah. I, I listened to a town hall with Democratic lawmakers who represent that area and members of Congress, and there was definitely a sense of urgency. Democratic Representative Judy Amapole um, represents the district where the shooting occurred, and she also has a personal connection to that King Supers. Her son used to work there. And his girlfriend is a current employee, even though she wasn't there when the shooting occurred. And I can see how desperately everybody wants us to act. We have to act. This has got to be a moment where we don't just do what we did at Sandy Hook. Not to be negative here, but I don't think Congress is going to do anything. Um, and it, and it's not just you know political courage from Democrats. You're going to have to see that from Republicans as well, especially if you want to clear anything in the Senate. You know, there are some Democrats who say the calculus is a bit different this time around than the last time they passed meaningful gun legislation, the assault weapons ban. Why is that, Lynn? Because the NRA has declared bankruptcy. It might not be the political force it was back then, sort of targeting Democrats who supported that measure. Okay. But, of course, you know, Republicans will fundraise off of any Democratic efforts when it comes to gun control. And Representative Lauren Boebert already sent out a fundraising email. So what I think I'm hearing is that, Lynn, you are pretty skeptical that we'll see any legislation passed at the federal level. Bento, you think we, mm -hmm. we could see something here at the state level in Colorado. Mm -hmm. So yeah. I want to ask, I want to focus on that for a second. What kind of a political fight would that take? And when's the last time we even saw anything like that a, a decade ago? Yeah, probably it was when Colorado passed some gun bills in the wake of the Aurora Theater shooting and Sandy Hook. So the legislature passed universal background checks and a ban on high-capacity magazines. And what I understand happened is that two Democratic senators were then recalled from office. Another had to resign to avoid that happening to them. Do you think lawmakers would be facing a similar backlash if they move forward now, especially given that there's a lot more Democrats in these kind of split suburban districts? Those recalls were definitely unprecedented. The demographics have changed somewhat in Colorado since 2013. Democrats have made more gains. But something like an assault weapons ban would draw unbelievable support and also incredible backlash. One lawmaker I talked to noted that the gun policy debate especially is very divisive and touches on so many different emotions and beliefs. It's always been politically charged, but he says it's only gotten worse. Assault weapons in particular are just like incredibly popular. I happen to have two neighbors. I'm close with both of them. One's a Trump voter. Uh, one's like an older, dedicated union style Democrat. Mm -hmm. They both own them. And I remember both of them <laughs> saying over the summer that they were like ready to protect the neighborhood if, if violence broke out, if you remember when things were really on edge. And I think that that really spoke to how common these weapons have become in American culture. Yeah. Wow, Andy, that's a really good point. And I think we hear a lot in the national media and locally about how this is so politically divided, Republicans on one side, Democrats on the other. But it's not like that entirely. And so this is a, a tough decision, especially for more moderate Democrats and, and maybe people who represent more rural parts of the state. You know, the next 
big congressional race in Colorado will be Senator Michael Bennett's reelection race in November 2022. You know, there is a lot of time between now and then, but I don't think his support for gun control measures would signal trouble for him in Colorado. A lot of what Democrats in the Senate are talking about legislatively, like universal background checks, are steps that Colorado has already taken. I think it's Mm -hmm. very personal for Bennett. You could hear it in his voice when he spoke on the Senate floor about this latest tragedy. He could measure it in the life of his eldest daughter. She was born right after Columbine. She's 21 years old. And her entire generation has grown up in the shadow of gun violence. Something none of us had to do. Both Bennett and John Hickenlooper have talked about a number of bills they'd like to see passed. Yes to both House bills, an assault weapons ban, red flag laws, or increased mental health services. But I'm going to go back to one other thing Bennett said um, since the shooting. That was that his darkest day in the Senate was when the chamber failed to pass a universal background check bill after the Sandy Hook shooting. And he specifically called out that moment. Yeah. You know, 20 young kids, six and seven year olds shot and killed in their classrooms. And Congress, you know, they did nothing. They couldn't get to 60 in the Senate. I also wanted to point out that we're talking about this right now through a political lens, a political filter. But, you know, this may not be something we can easily predict just with like electoral math, because like you heard in in Bannon's voice there, I think this is like a human issue. and, And, you know, sometimes it is more just politicians actually believing in something and doing what they think needs to be done and not pure calculation. I think you're right, but you also can't ignore that some of the politicians in Colorado closest to this shooting are also in the safest Democratic districts. Mm. And their constituents in the Boulder area are are liberal. A lot of these lawmakers are too. So I'm, I'm not saying they don't personally support some of this stuff, but it's a part of the state that had strict gun laws already. I mean, in 2018, in response to the Parkland shooting in Florida, Boulder passed an assault-style weapons ban for the city. A state court struck that down. And that's because Colorado is among a few states that, you know, local cities and communities can't have stricter gun laws than the state does. So I wouldn't be surprised if those local lawmakers, and I think we're hearing this already, are kind of at the forefront of bringing up the assault weapons ban and such measures, right? Yes, they've said that explicitly. Um, Some of them have said they want to pursue the most aggressive policies that are possible. Uh, And I think one thing I've been really curious about is some of the Democrats who don't represent places like Boulder and have more politically diverse, ideological diverse. It doesn't have to be just your party registration, but you know, we have two Democratic state lawmakers who are running for Congress. They hope to unseat Republican Congresswoman Lauren Bolbert, mm-hmm. um, Carrie Donovan. She's from the Vale area. And Donald Valdez. He's from southern Colorado. So they're in a district that uh, a lot of people are, are big Second Amendment supporters. I, I will say in the summer when I was traveling through the third congressional district, I talked to Ben Nighthorse Campbell, who was a representative for that district as a Democrat. And he said that any Democrat who runs has to be pro-gun in that district. Caitlin Kem, CPR's reporter based in Washington, D.C., and public affairs reporters Benta Berkland and Andrew Kenny. Hear the entire episode of Purplish at Stitcher, Apple, or wherever you get your podcasts, and at CPR.org.
When we come back, a man who lost an eye in the Black Lives Matter protests this summer is among the injured protesters suing the city of Denver. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. It's been nearly two years since we released an episode of our podcast since Columbine. We didn't expect to add another episode to the series, but our conversation last week with former Columbine principal Frank DeAngelis was so important, it just had to be shared. And it does, it re-traumatizes you. But I refuse to be helpless or hopeless. I refuse to give up. I'm Nathaniel Miner. Real advice about seeking help and not trying to power through alone. A special episode of Since Columbine and the entire series, anywhere you get your podcasts. The trial of the officer charged with murder and the death of George Floyd is underway in Minneapolis, and the after-effects of Floyd's death are still reverberating through cities across the country, where protests against police brutality led to life-threatening injuries and lawsuits. Russell Strong lost his right eye during the protests last summer in downtown Denver. Strong was hit by a projectile fired by police. He recently filed a lawsuit against the city and county of Denver. He joins us along with his attorney, Matt Crone. Russell and Matt, welcome to the show. Good morning, Avery. Thank you for having us, Avery. Russell, you were on our show in July, shortly after you were injured. For those who didn't hear it then, how did you lose your eye? Well, you know, I think you kind of summed it up there. I was struck in the face with uh, some sort of projectile that um, did uh, significant damage to the, the bones in my face, and the eye itself was ruptured and had to be removed. And you were out there protesting. Tell us a little bit about the scene at the time. What were you doing? Um, I was standing in the park, Civic Center Park. Um, I'm hold, I was holding a sign. You know, there were the park was full of people. Um, and it just kind of it was just kind of a nice day in the park. And um, without warning, the police started to fire into the crowd and it just kind of turned into chaos. And why was it important for you to be there that day? Well, I I think it's a uh, an issue that needed to have some awareness raised around it uh, to help the black community and uh, uh, help maybe get a discussion going around police brutality and ways that we can um, hold police accountable. And um, so I was just there trying to do my part, you know, in that to raise that awareness. So you were there holding a sign. You were struck in the face with the projectile. You've since had reconstructive surgeries. How are you doing now? Um, I like to say I'm doing okay. You know, I got to tell at least tell myself I'm doing okay. Um, and I got a prosthetic eye. Um, I was through, I was lucky enough to get an eye through um, donations made by the community to, to a GoFundMe. So I was able to get a prosthetic eye and that helps a lot with, uh, I guess feeling normal or, um, but you know, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm, it's a struggle. Uh, I won't lie to you. Uh, so it's, it's been hard, but, uh, I'm, I'm a strong individual and I'll get through it. And you're an artist. And when we spoke last time, you said losing your depth perception when you lost your eye, it was devastating. Have you been able to get back to your art? Um, yeah, I have. I can't stop creating art. Um, it's just a much more arduous process. Um, and it just takes a lot longer to reach the final product. Um, there's just a lot of uh, frustration there that wasn't there before, but, um, 
you know, it's uh, creating art as a part of who I am and I'll, I'll never stop. And so I'm glad to hear you're still creating. Matt Crone, you're Russell's attorney. What is your take on what happened the day that he lost his eye? So when Russell went to Civic Center Park, he, along with everyone else there, was engaging in activities that are firmly protected under the United States Constitution, the First Amendment. He was part of a peaceful assembly. He was exercising his right to free speech. And the law enforcement officers on scene acted in an entirely unlawful manner. They had no justification for using the extreme amount of force that he did. Frankly, the activities that Russell was engaging in are activities firmly protected by the United States Constitution. If you love the Constitution, you should love exactly what Russell was doing. And yet to have him suffer that sort of injury, that sort of harm out of these fundamental protected activities is just an unfathomable tragedy. And we should say that we contacted the Denver police and they said, quote, it would be inappropriate to provide comment at this time due to pending litigation. So we can't get the police's own take. Um, Matt, will you tell us about the weapon you believe was used and what other less lethal equipment the police can use? Um, absolutely. Uh, the We believe that Russell was struck with a foam baton launched from a 40 millimeter uh, launcher, which is classified as a non-lethal or less lethal form of weaponry. Uh, but the problem is that these weapons can kill uh, and they can certainly cause serious bodily injury as evidenced by what happened to Russell. Unfortunately, he's not the only person that suffered life-altering injury as a result of these so-called less lethal weapons. Um, other forms of weaponry that was employed against citizens of Denver include pepper balls, pepper spray, tear gas, um, flashbangs. They employ pretty much every sort of non-lethal force or less lethal force that exists. The Office of the Independent Monitor found in its report late last year about how the Denver Police Department handled the protests this summer that the department at times violated its own policies and endangered people. It called some of its use of so-called less lethal munitions extremely troubling, but it also points to police officers who were injured during the protests and stops short of an overall condemnation of the behavior of police. Do you support the overall report, Matt? I think that the independent monitor did a very good job of highlighting all of the issues with the police response to the protests. Now, it's not necessarily the place of the independent monitor to make judgments, um, uh, more so to uh, put a spotlight on issues um, that the legislature and uh, police departments can then use to remedy these problems in the future. Um, I, I do believe that the, although there were certainly uh, police that were harmed during the protests, uh, there were many, many, many more civilians that were harmed. And the police response in many cases was just grossly di disproportionate 
to the uh, situation they were presented with. We have well-established standards for when law enforcement can use excessive force. And those standards were violated time and time again over many days in many incidents. Russell, what are you hoping to get out of this lawsuit? For me, I'm hoping to just get a chance to present my case, you know, before a jury and uh, let them just decide. I I feel like I've been wronged and, um, you know, maybe there's even some lessons to be learned about policing and handling protests like that. And uh, so I I think I deserve my day in court. And Russell, would an award possibly help with future medical treatments? I'm not certain. I'm unsure if that um, what that would uh, involve as far as compensation. Yeah. And Avery, one of the other one of the goals of this lawsuit is uh, we we would like this never to happen again in Denver. And there's several other lawsuits uh, that have been filed relating to force used during the George Floyd protests in Denver. And an overarching goal of these lawsuits is to ensure that Denver receives a loud message that the actions by its officers and officers from neighboring jurisdictions simply won't be tolerated by this community. And as you said, there were other injuries. Um, This is not even the only incidence of eye injuries from these projectiles. Another man in Denver lost his eye the same night that Russell did. Matt, how common is this? And we know that there are other lawsuits filed in Denver as a result of these injuries. Uh, it's, It's unfortunately very common and more common than I think anyone might expect. Uh, There's been scientific studies that have shown that these sort of uh, kinetic impact projectile weapons uh, can cause death uh, two or three percent of the time that they're used. Um, They can cause serious bodily injury far more frequently than that. And so these are not, these sort of weapons should not be lightly used. And they were used in a very cavalier, senseless uh, fashion. This was almost like a paintball game, it felt like, to Denver officers uh, or how it seemed. And so the use of force has to be carefully circumscribed because once officers start using excessive force against our civilians, it's breaking down the, the walls of our society. It's eroding the trust between c- civilians and law enforcement, which is paramount to a functioning society. And so what happened this summer in the protests is just, it cannot be tolerated. And Russell, we talked about how your eye is healing and your art. Are there other long-term effects for, of this for you? Um, certainly, I'd say probably the psychological effects are will be uh, long-term. Um, it, it's... I could go probably on and on about the long-term effects when it comes to maybe uh, trying to find a job or, um, you know, trying to find uh, love um, or, you know, it's, it, there's, uh, 
I'm told that over time, the eyelid and the eye socket will start to droop and there's additional surgeries that would be needed to, you know, essentially keep shape of the eye so that I could have wear a prosthetic. Um, and so, yeah, it's a, kind of a lifelong sentence for sure of uh, just health issues and um, negative impacts. Yeah. Russell, thank you for sharing and thank you both for being here. Thank you for having us. Russell Strong's eye had to be removed after police shot him with a projectile during protests in Denver last summer over the death of George Floyd in Minneapolis. Matt Crone is Strong's attorney and specializes in civil rights cases. It's been 10 months since George Floyd's death sparked outrage and protests against racial inequality across the country. Floyd's death also inspired a wave of new protest songs, including one from Denver rapper A. Measy. The title of the track borrows from Floyd's last words, I can't breathe, a phrase that's become ubiquitous with the Black Lives Matter movement. According to a report by the New York Times, those words were uttered by at least 70 others in their final moments before succumbing to excessive police force. With that in mind, here's A. Measy with I Can't Breathe. Sorry, mama, but I had to do it. Equality is still missing like an absent student. The black movement, tired of getting these to our necks. Fed up with the walls and tired of putting our backs to it. So I'ma be the voice for my kids. Since they can't do it, I'ma make the choice for my kids and tell them this is deeper than rap. I ain't no preacher, just a speaker with facts. We black gold, we just live from the cracks. Unarmed, I should leave unharmed. If not, then my hive gon' swarm. How many wives gon' mourn? How much longer we survive in this storm? Tired of marching and protesting and writing these songs. But the whole mood is different now. We're standing up, we sitting down. We talk about the issues. Is you getting in or getting out? Yeah. See, we just tired of being patient. We just need love and ventilation. I Denver rapper A. Measy with I Can't Breathe, written in the wake of George Floyd's killing last summer. The track also features Will Geis, Shai Rico, and Ramon. Colorado Matters continues after the break on CPR News and KRCC. Hey, it's Vic Vela from CPR's podcast Back From Broken. Last season, we told stories of recovery and hope. And you listened. Back from Broken inspired me to. I've look been at my really blown away by Back from Broken. I've learned something from morning. every story your brave guests have shared. This season on Back from Broken, more stories about hope. Happiness is just like right here, it's in being alive. Find Back from Broken on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. With support from CU Anschutz, Department of Psychiatry. Norman Rockwell's iconic paintings evoke stories and captured hearts during his expansive career. Some are warm and funny, like After the Prom, where a young girl shows off her corsage to a cook at the diner counter while her date looks on proudly. Others address more serious subjects, like racism and desegregation in the 1960s. 
Rockwell often used residents of his hometown in Stockbridge, Massachusetts, as models for his paintings. Charlotte Sorensen posed for him as a teenager. She's 81 now and lives in Boulder. She recently found out what happened to that painting where she's featured. Charlotte, welcome to the show. Hello. (laughs) We'll get to what happened in that painting, but first, how did you wind up modeling for Rockwell? Well, it was quite common in the little town of Stockbridge, Massachusetts, in the Berkshires, in western Massachusetts, a town of about 2,000 people. Uh, Rockwell was a very well-respected member of the community. He was uh, gentle, kind, walked the streets, and looked for people to um, populate his paintings. Many, many, many people in the town were used as models. It wasn't uncommon. His um, studio was just uh, above Main Street. It overlooked Main Street with a big plate glass window so he could look out of his window and watch people go up and down Main Street and decide um, if he could use someone in one of his paintings. He probably had it in mind what he wanted to do and looked for the appropriate model for that particular painting. And so you were just walking around one day and he asked you to model for him? No, it wasn't like that. I was in the, a sophomore in the public high school, which was also on Main Street. And after school in the afternoon, um, my classmates and I would walk down the street and go to the drugstore, which was exactly opposite Norman Rockwell's studio. Um, which overlooked the drugstore in Main Street. And we would uh, gather at the drugstore and do what teenagers do. I was 15. And um, we would um, go into the drugstore, sit on the little round twirling stools and drink root beer floats and, and chatter about our day and so forth, gossip, I suppose. And one day... Um, Someone came down from Norman Rockwell's studio across the street and said, could I please come up to um, the studio and and Norman Rockwell would like to take some pictures because that's what he did. He took photographs and um, and and I did. And it, it was completely proper to do that to if somebody called you to go up if Norman Rockwell called and said, come up to my studio, that was common and, and nobody thought anything of it. And I do remember going up there and um, he took some pictures and he was a very quiet man. So we didn't talk much. And then, then I went down, I think wooden stairs to the first floor and went back to the drugstore and to my friends. That was all, <laughs> that was it. That was the, that was the interchange. However, I did, see him often on the street. He lived around the corner with his very gifted, wonderful wife, Molly Punderson. She wrote a book called Willie Was Different, and um, he illustrated it. It was about a a, a bird who was different, and um, it was a totally charming book. So together, they would walk up and down the main street get, doing their errands, or alone, he would walk uh, home and so forth. Always a courtly presence on the street. He would wave or smile. He smoked a pipe, and um, a, a gentle, humble, modest, quiet, 
person whom everybody loved and respected in the town. It sounds like he was just a real figure in the community. And this painting that you posed for, it's called Bright Future in Banking. It's a group of graduates in caps and gowns listening earnestly to a commencement speech. And it was originally an ad for Chase Bank, and it was in the Saturday Evening Post. Rockwell was known in particular for his covers for the Post. So Rockwell, like you said, his approach to painting was often starting with photographs. He'd have an idea for a painting, and he'd have a subject like you come into the studio, and a photographer would snap a photo. Um, And he'd often photograph a bunch of people individually, then compile them together into one painting. And in your case, a bunch of graduates. What was, uh, tell me, what was your experience seeing that final painting the first time when you saw it as a teenager? Well, I think that, um, I think my family probably bought a copy of the Saturday Evening Post. It was in the Saturday Evening Post, the advertisement. It was not the cover. And they, I think I cut it out. I sort of remember having a, a copy and then I lost it and I never thought about it for another 67 years or so until just last winter, this past winter, I, I was looking through the New York Times and I, I saw the painting and I said, oh, that's, that's me, that's, I am in that painting. And I called my daughter and she, she called the uh, M.S. Rao Gallery in New Orleans, which is selling the painting and asked them, told them that it was kind of interesting that to her that her mother was looking through the paper innocently one morning and happened to see this painting and, and Trina called the gallery and, and said, what's going on? And, and after that, um, the publicist for the gallery called the New York Times and got a reporter to write up the story and so forth. So that was in the New York Times a few, a week or so ago uh, on the art, in the art section. So that's a little bit more of the story. That is delightful. We actually reached out to the gallery owner in New Orleans, Bill Rao, who's selling the painting for $885,000. And he said at the beginning of Rockwell's career, people really weren't quite sure what to make of his work. Rockwell was very well thought of in some circles, but for other people, he was just an illustration artist. And so Rao says early on, many people just saw him as a commercial artist, which probably explains why this painting almost ended up in the trash. A gentleman was walking in Lower Manhattan in 1955, and he sees a janitor throwing out this painting. And he turns to him, he goes, what are you doing? He goes, I'm throwing out. He goes, would you mind if I take it? He goes, no. So he brought it home. He had a young kid, and he put it in his kid's bedroom. That's where the painting stayed for many years until the parents died and their kids sold it to Rao's gallery. Now Rao is selling it, and he put an ad for it actually in the Wall Street Journal. And he said you reached out to him to tell him about it. Did you ever consider buying it? Obviously, it is very expensive. No, 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 (laughs) no. I I don't need to acquire more things. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely did not cross my mind. No. You also later went to the Rockwell Museum in Stockbridge, Massachusetts for a day when many of Rockwell's models sit before paintings that they're in. And the public gets a chance to see the models as they were in the paintings and as they are now. What was that like? (laughs) It was very, um, very 
uh, different, I guess is a word to use. Uh, unlike any other experience I've had sitting, sitting at a long table with other models that they had found. Um, and, and then um, having the public file by and they first looked at the painting that I was holding or the, the uh, reproduction that I was holding. And then they would look there and then they would look up to see how the model had aged. That seemed to be a, a fun thing for the public to do. And, and it was one, I did it once and that was, that was, that was enough. <laughs> <laughs> well, Charlotte, I want to thank you so much for sharing your story with us. Thank you so much. Yeah. Well, the bright futures part, my daughter wanted me to say that I had since had a, a bright future, not in banking, but I had a bright future. I love that. Charlotte Sorensen was a model for one of Norman Rockwell's paintings in the 1950s. At the time, she was a sophomore in high school in her hometown where Rockwell was also a resident. The painting is on sale at a gallery in New Orleans. Many of Rockwell's paintings have been sold for tens of millions of dollars. Thanks for joining us today and to the team of artists who brings Colorado Matters to air. Carl Bielek. Ali Butner. Andrea Dukakis. Michelle Fulcher. Matt Hers. Michael Hughes. Carla Jimenez. Pedro Lumbrano. Patrice Mondragon. Shane Rumsey. Ryan Warner. And I'm Avery Lill. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Thank <laughs> you.